Hey there. Welcome to one of our first stories of the podcast. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. In season three, we shouldered up with you and made it clear that this podcast is not for sale. No advertising or outside influence, a sacred and safe space. Starting with season three, we dedicate a poem to one of our listeners that is standing with us as an enabler of our mission. They're doing so by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. To be true to our word, we're going back through some of our earlier content in seasons one and two and removing the segments that we feel may not be congruent with this idea. So enjoy. This story, like every other story on our podcast, is now 100% advertising free. A safe space where you can let your guard down, listen, and notice if something comes up in your soul. If you would like to be an enabler, and we certainly could use your help, visit bellystory.com and chip in $5 today. Now, here's that extraordinary life story. The goal of this podcast is to bring to life the nature of transformation through people's personal stories of getting knocked down in life and climbing up a new person. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show so that other heroes can find it too. Let me introduce you to Rachel Poisky. And it's almost that moment when I pulled into the driveway I didn't even have to ask the question why he was there at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I walked up to the door and he met me at the door. And I just said, is it, is it that? And he said, yes. And I said, the really bad kind? And he said, yes. And that was a moment when we went from being a normal family to a special needs family, just all of a sudden. Rachel's family collects rare diseases at her house. Her son, Joel, now 17, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy at the age of three. And five years later, just as his special needs were starting to feel balanced in their family, their daughter, Hallie, now 12, was diagnosed with an even rarer disease that came out of nowhere and threatened her life immediately. From initial denial and distancing to lasting trauma and daily grief, Rachel is today a fierce community advocate and a top fundraiser for muscular dystrophy research. With her husband, Dr. James Poisky, a top specialist in pediatric neuropsychology and clinical psychology, They find balance in giving each other space to grieve differently, but always together. Together with Joel's uncle, Brad Todd, they founded the nonprofit CoachToCureMD.org, which has put muscular dystrophy in the game, with more than 10,000 college football coaches supporting the cause. Rachel Poisky, welcome to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
Rachel, I would love for you to tell us the story of being in a gymnastics studio with your young son, Joel, for a birthday party. And you start to notice that he's not keeping up with all the other kids and that maybe everything that your husband was telling you could be true. Yeah, I one day was a Saturday and Joel got invited to this birthday party. And for the past few weeks before that, my husband had been really worried and anxious. And he was telling me something's not right with Joel. His calves are big. He gets up off the floor weird. And I just said, you're crazy. I said, you've got big calves. He's fine. And I even said to him, I said, what What do you think he has? And he said, well, maybe he has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I said, okay. And I really just blew it off. And But later that night, I went and looked on um, a website about Duchenne. And I read it, and it said, these boys have a genetic condition. It causes their muscles to atrophy. Um, they're in a wheelchair by the time they're 10 or 11, and they're dead by 16. And I thought, okay, that's not my son. I looked at him. He was healthy. He was walking. And I just really didn't even think a thing about it. I real, I just said, nope, that's not it. But then that Saturday morning, we went to a birthday party. And it's one of those jumpy places with for preschoolers with a little gym. And I'm watching all the other kids bouncing around. And then I see the instructor who's in the gym having to help my son do everything. And I thought, that's really strange. That's not right. So I came home and I said to James, I said, okay, let, let's go get a blood test. Let's go, let's go see if something's wrong. But I still was not thinking it was that. I thought maybe he's just developmentally behind. He's delayed. He's a boy. So we went to um, the lab. We, we showed up. My husband actually worked at a children's hospital at the time. And we pulled up to the lab and he said to the lab, to the lab worker, he said, test for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I looked at him and I said, aren't we doing other tests? And he said, nope, we're just going to do that one. So we got the test and we asked the lab, when is this, when will we get the results? And she said, a few hours. So Joel and I left and went and got ice cream and just ran around town, but we, I would say we got home about three o'clock and I pulled into the driveway and my husband's car was already there. And it's almost that moment when I pulled into the driveway, I didn't even have to ask the question why he was there at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I walked up to the door and he met me at the door and I just said, is it, is it that? And he said, yes. And I said, the really bad kind? And he said, yes. And that was a moment when we went from being a normal family to a special needs family, just all of a sudden. 
I can't describe how weird that was, that the beginning of the day, my biggest concern was that my son didn't eat too much ice cream. And at the end of the day, realizing I maybe only had 13 years left with him. It's a surreal experience that even to this day um, takes my breath away. Your husband is, in fact, a doctor. He's a neuropsychologist at Texas Children's Hospital. If it weren't for his training, would this diagnosis have come up? Hmm. Yeah. Well, he's actually in private practice now. (laughs) He's not there anymore. But he was there at the time. And I think we would have... Well, I always say to him, because he was a neuropsychologist, we caught it early. I don't know that I would have caught it for a few more years. Uh, usually, they kids get diagnosed between three and six or even a little bit later because you go to the doctor and they say, boys will be boys and all that kind of stuff. But because my husband had seen the disease, because he had worked in a children's hospital, he definitely caught it early, which I'm so grateful for that. You know, what a blessing that was. And I remember my brother saying that he said, this is amazing that, you know, this was James' profession so he could catch catch it early. And I, I am grateful for that. It, you know, there's moments where you say, I wish I'd had a few more years of normal, but but at the same time, we needed to start him on treatment. So, of course, I'm glad he got it earlier. We got the diagnosis earlier. I've been learning more about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I've learned that it's the most common fatal genetic disorder of childhood, that it primarily or pretty much only affects boys, and that girls are carriers, but in fact, it only affects the two X chromosomes. Is that all? Correct. There's very rare instances when it impacts girls um, and and women who are carriers can manifest some symptoms. But because women have an extra X chromosome, their good X takes over for the bad X where boys only have one X. So it is um, an inherited. However, uh, what a lot of people don't know is uh, yes, a, a woman can be a carrier and pass it down through families. There are families that have it. Uh, but in our situation, it I'm not a carrier. It um, just, uh, they don't know, spontaneous mutation type thing. So we had no warning uh, that it was even in our family because it's not genetically even a part of me. Um, it was a mutation that just happened. And then, of course, there's a lot of families where the mom is the first one from a mutation. She's a carrier and she doesn't know it. And then she has a son with Duchenne. So um, it it can pass down, but it also can be a spontaneous. And I think they, they still don't have a clear picture exactly about how, how the ways that can happen. But yeah. One very visceral description that I read that really helped me gain some empathy for DMD is the idea that when we take a big, deep breath, that's in fact our muscles working. Mm -hmm. And that for these boys who are diagnosed with that, which is, I've I've read one in 3,500, I've read one in 3,000, one in 5,000, you know, it's sort of like this range of one to three to 5,000, they won't be able to do that eventually. 
Yeah, it, you know, if you think about it, there are so many muscles in your body and every single muscle is affected. Um, they're missing dystrophin, which this, this is simplistic and a doctor would probably be horrified that I explained it this way. But basically, dystrophin is the glue that holds your muscles together. And when you exercise, you tear your muscles and the dystrophin helps repair them. They don't have any dystrophin, so their muscles can't repair. So scar tissue develops. And think about all the muscles in your body. Your tongue is a muscle. They lose strength in their tongue. They're the um, muscles around their lungs, around their heart. And eventually, you know, because their heart is a muscle, that uh, they die of cardiac failure. Um, you know, th- when Joel was diagnosed, it was around 16. Some improvements have come and boys are living longer into their 20s. Um, a rare guy will live to 30. Um, but the heart breaks down. So even though they stop walking, you know, around anywhere from 10 to 20, the heart is ultimately the problem because they have cardiac issues that can't be fixed. Can you tell us about the language of Duchenne? And I think any parent who's dealing with a rare disease probably has to deal with something something similar. Yeah. You know, when Joel was diagnosed at three, I couldn't say the word out loud to him for years. And I know other parents have had that experience. I couldn't say Duchenne. I didn't think there would be a day when I could say Duchenne to him. But I could say your muscles work differently. And I've always said that teaching your kids about Duchenne is a lot like having the sex talk with them. If you leave it for one day, you're in big trouble. But it's a conversation that should start when they're little and increase as they are getting older. And that's the way we've tried to be with Duchenne. Um, I've tried to always tell him the truth. And I did get to a place where I could say Duchenne with him. Um, I've tried to always be open with him and answer his questions because I wanted him to know that he could trust me and that I would always give him the truth. Um, The truth is just a big priority in our family that we speak the truth. Now, I I will say that... um, it's what he wanted, you know, I, it was measured, right? What information he wanted at the time. So a lot of times when he would ask me something, I would say, what are you thinking? And that helped me know what language to give him. And, you know, I love how James said the parents were so concerned about when they find out what the disease is. And James always says, you know, the parents are way more concerned about that than the kids are. Um, they kind of take it in stride. And it's so true because one day there was a commercial and it was about Duchenne and it was telling about the trajectory of the disease. And I was trying to talk over it so Joel wouldn't hear it. And he told me, he said, be quiet. I want to listen. And so I sat there and let him listen. And then he said, he said, is that true? Do, do they do they die? And I said, yeah, it's true. It's true. And he said, hmm, okay, what's for dinner? <laughs> and I thought, he's so much more resilient than I am that he can, I don't know. It, it, and for him, he, you know, he wrote a paper last year. He's a junior this year, but he wrote a paper about how Duchenne had made him better. And I thought, okay, if he can say that, I can say that somehow too. I can find out somewhere in the depths to say it. But we've just tried to 
be honest and open about what the language is so that he had the tools to be his own advocate, to be able to process what was happening to him. You know, it's the kids know something's and I've, I've seen parents try to hide it. And we always say the kids know something's going on. They may not have the language for what's happening, but you've got to give them the tools and the knowledge to function. And, and it's not your disease. It's their disease. So they need information for their disease. I'd like to go back to the diagnosis and that first day and really the couple of weeks and months after that. You mentioned how your husband, James, was going to conferences, meeting other parents, really consuming as much knowledge from the community as he could, while you didn't want to be involved at all. You, Mm -hmm. in fact, didn't even want to meet another parent that was dealing with this. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. um, You know, when he was first diagnosed, prior to that, I, I really had a feeling something was coming. And that a bigger purpose, there was a bigger purpose for us. And so that first week was terrible. But the week after we looked at each other and I said, I, I think we're supposed to be in this. I think we have purpose to fight this disease. And my husband agreed. And in fact, um, with Duchenne comes a ton of learning and behavior issues and, um, there hadn't been a lot of work on that research-wise. In fact, I think there was the I could find one research research article about it uh, that said they were just spoiled. So anyway, James felt a particular calling because he could help with some of the learning, some of the behavior stuff, and uh, really examine that. and And that's something we still continue to work really hard, and um, it's still a place that's growing and needs to grow in the Duchenne community. But as he dove into that world, I wasn't ready. And I think um, we both were on the same page, but at the same time, we gave each other space to grieve in our own way. And I didn't want to meet another Duchenne mom. I didn't want to talk to another Duchenne mom. I wanted to just kind of be outside of that whole realm. I knew I wasn't ready. I knew at some point I would be, but I had to give myself space. And I really appreciate that he gave me space. Um, You know, we sat down uh, probably two weeks after Joel was diagnosed. We went out to dinner and we said, what are our new priorities? What do we want to do? And so we made just a list of these were our priorities for our family and it's priorities that actually guide our family even to this day. And they it really helps us decide what we're going to invest in and what we're not. I mean, the blessing of a diagnosis like this is it puts everything in perspective. And the things you think were important are not important at all. And the things that um, you've forgotten about become extremely important. So for us we were able to hone our priorities in and say, these are the things we're going to focus on. And these are the things we are not going to focus on. And that's powerful. Um, So, so yeah, so he dove in, I had to take about a year or so until um, I finally started um, talking to other parents and connecting and, um, 
it was just my own time frame and and in that he also had grief too you know we had a, a something we would do where we would say i need a break and if one of us said i need a break the other one said okay there was no i can't i need you to do dishes right now or i need you to help it was just like okay and if you needed a break you could leave the house you could do whatever you needed to do just take a few hours to regroup and um that was that was a helpful part of just giving each other that space and that freedom um you know i stayed up all night every night watching bad tv and uh for months and uh i guess he could have said something about that but he didn't um you know we just we functioned for a while you just kind of function and i think looking back on that i see a great gift and beauty in that we let each other just be where we were and not force something um or not try to grieve the same way and i think that ultimately oh it was a gift that we gave each other and it allowed us to get through still intact which a lot of um special needs families the divorce rate is so high and so i'm grateful for that Rachel, one of the quotes I read that really sums this up perfectly is when you said that you were dealing with it differently, but you were still together. Yeah, I think that became our mantra. And I see a lot of special needs parents, they they make each other the enemy, not the disease the enemy. And for us, we made the disease the enemy that we were going to tackle together no matter what and that's really where we you have to have somewhere to kind of put your anger and your grief and it's got to be directed well and so we put it on the disease and that kind of brought us together I will say we also put it on (laughs) other people which is not particularly healthy but you know we would come home and joke and I would say I chewed out a telemarketer today and he'd say, I yelled at a plumber. And I was like, these poor people. But, um, you know, those first few weeks, you're just trying to, when you get to the anger stage, you're trying to figure out where to put it. And I probably need to go back. And I actually had a telemarketer uh, hang up on me because I was so rude to them. I, I feel bad about that. But my point is we didn't direct our anger at each other. We, we got on the same team and, and that that's been helpful from the beginning. Life is returning to a state of normalcy after a few years, and you're pregnant with your daughter, Hallie, Mm -hmm. and you had a mantra, something you would say to yourself during the pregnancy every day, you would pray, right? You would say, Mm -hmm. God, give me a break. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I was pregnant with Hallie and of course had a lot of fears and um, my prayer was, God, give me a break. And when she was born, I laughed because she was the easiest baby on the planet. She slept she all the time. She ate so easy. She was just great. And I mean, so such an easy toddler, no problems. So it was always so funny to me that I thought, wow, God, you really heard my prayer. And then some, it was so easy. And, um, I was grateful for that and it was fun. And, but then about, uh, when she was four years old, we were in Dallas over Labor Day 
And there was a, we were there for a fundraiser we worked on for Joel. And I came, my friend was keeping Hallie, and I came home that night from the fundraiser, and she said, Hallie's been asleep a really long time. And I thought, that's weird. Um, so my husband got up the next day, and she was ill all night, and took her to an urgent care, and they said, well, maybe it's an ear infection, but watch it. So we went to another friend's house because it was Labor Day in Fort Worth and hanging out there. And um, she just started getting worse and worse and worse. And so later in the day, we said, we've got to take her to the ER. And she was having these very strange symptoms, um, just high fever, throwing up. Her lymph nodes were so enlarged, you couldn't even see her neck. She, wherever she had a scratch, it had like blown up, just swelled. It just a little tiny scratch, it like blown up. And so we got to the hospital and spent a long time there and they did a lot of tests and it was really weird. They said, we're going to send her home, but you be back here at 11 o'clock in the morning for us to recheck her. So we came, we had a terrible night. She kept declining in health by the hour. We took her back that morning and um, we walked in and she was just terrible shape to the point where they said, you need to drive to the hospital now. And because it was a satellite ER. So we drove to the hospital. When we got there, they said, where have you been? And we said, we just were driving there, but they were urgently waiting on her. And this doctor came in and said, I don't know what she has. And we're sitting here watching this little girl who'd been playing and fine. All of a sudden, she couldn't walk. She wasn't talking. And I hit a breaking point. I was like, where is my break? And my husband and I weren't saying it. But later on, we said we both were thinking she's not going to be with us within 24 hours. And that was the bottom. I thought with Duchenne, I didn't have a further bottom but I did and I went into the bathroom at the hospital and I wanted to punch the paper towel holder but I thought I'd just probably break my hand and I didn't have time for that so I didn't but I just screamed I was just like you said I was going to get a break with her and (laughs) this is not a break and uh, it was a terrible terrible few days um Thank God her pediatrician, who is forever my angel, uh, diagnosed her over the phone before the hospital did. She said, I bet my house, I bet my practice, it's Kawasaki disease. And uh, and it was. And we got a treatment for her a few days later. And um, she still has some lasting effects, but uh, definitely... Getting her the treatment in time helped. She had some heart implications. It's a rare disease. I say we collect rare diseases at my house. Um, But she, she for the she has pretty much recovered. I mean, we did find out after that that she had kidney failure on one side, and we had to go through all that as well. But that was a point where I I just got I you know I felt like with Joel when he was diagnosed. There was a purpose. There was a calling there. We were supposed to be there. But 
with Hallie, I was just mad and I was angry and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that um, she was sick, that I had two kids now with rare diseases that at certain moments were going to have to fight for their life. And um, so that was, I can easily say that was the lowest point for me in all this. Rachel, I would love for you to pick it up there and tell us how you didn't give up, how you maybe surrendered to this point in your life, but you started to shift and say, okay, this is the new normal. We got through it the first time. We're going to get through this as well. Yeah, I think I've actually been reading about uh, this idea called, uh, I think, post-traumatic strength that um, some people are talking about how when you come through traumatic events, sometimes you develop this extra strength. And even though I was in the hospital with Hallie when she was diagnosed with Kawasaki and it was a low point, at that moment, I definitely can say I found this strength I didn't know that I had. And um, I had been advocating for Joel and fighting for Joel, but Hallie was, her, her illness was so much more acute that I had to daily, hourly be fighting for her and to get the treatment she needed on time to help fight the Kawasaki and that sort of thing. And um, I had to really push myself to be her advocate. And something in that moment helped me just gain a newfound strength and a feeling that I can fight for my children. I can fight for other children and I can be this advocate for them. And that was so empowering for me to realize, you know, I, th I think we all need to um, get to that place where we can be empowered to be the strength for the people that we love. And I found that for my kids that I had to be the one to kind of go before them and help them fight these battles and teach them how to fight them themselves, right? That's the ultimate goal of parenthood is, and, and that's a learning process when you have kids with health issues because <laughs> you, you vacillate between helicopter parent and trying to empower them. But I just found a strength in that moment that, um, it was good. You know, we were out of town. So, and my husband had to take Joel back to go to school and he had to go to work to pay for these mounting hospital bills. So it was just Hallie and I for a week sitting in the hospital by ourselves. And in that moment, I really gained a, a strength that I didn't have before um, that has helped me to be the advocate for my kids, and hopefully for other kids moving forward. You know, I've always felt called to kids. I've been a children's pastor for years and um, always wanted to fight for them and, and work for their good. But I think in that moment, I was given even more of a sense of that and that purpose and the strength to do that. You talk about the fact that how a special needs family is always in a quote unquote survival mode. But how you said, we're not just going to be in survival mode anymore. We're going to live. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think that 
you can get stuck as a special needs family and just getting through the next day and not stopping. You know, it's it's this weird thing where on one hand, you know, you're grateful for every minute because and you don't waste it. And special needs families are much better at that, um, at embracing the moments of things. But at the same time, you are always are in this heightened sense of um you know, some articles have talked about it's like when you're in a war zone, your fight or flight is always up. And that is true for a special needs family. Your fight or flight is always up. And I don't know, we've just tried to not let that um, dictate our entire lives to try to stop and have fun and, you know, have humor about the situation you know, just to laugh about, we always say we laugh about things that, you know, families would be horrified we're laughing about, but it it is what it is. And so we just try as a family to have fun and, you know, to make our own rules. We've always, we, you know, James and I, when we've talked about it, we say, you have to let the old roles and old rules that you think your family's going to be go out the window when you have a special needs family because it doesn't work that way. And, you know, your marriage roles have to change. You have to jump in and do things differently. And your roles with your kids have to change. And, you know, sometimes it's staying up a little later to watch a movie just because, you know what, it's worth it. Or, you know, just thinking about, taking that trip that you think you're going to take later. You know, my son loves to travel and we've really tried to do international travel because once he's in a power chair, he's not in a power chair yet, but once he is, that gets really complicated. And so kind of sacrificing some other things so that we can take him places and let him see the world while it's easier for him to do that. And I don't want to have regrets about the time I've spent with my kids and family and that I I don't want to forget to have fun. You know, when you are a special needs family, it is not a sprint. It is a marathon and you have to pace yourself. And um, I've also learned the uh, joy of being a good enough parent. You know, so many parents, I think we get caught up in this. I, you know, my kid has to be in all these activities and everything has to be perfect. And, you know, when you have a special needs family, you don't have time for that. You're, you're just like, that's not worth it anymore, you know? And um, so that's been freeing. It's a freeing thing to say, we're just going to live the best way we can. And we are going to make the rules that work for our family. And those probably are different rules than what we thought for sure. You know, I wouldn't have pictured, you know, certain things that I would, that we would do that I would have expected that way. But I feel like we've tried to find joy in the journey. That's what I want to remember is the moments where we've had fun and the moments where Duchenne didn't win. And um, that's my goal. Back to that journey, it's certainly not without its challenges. And one of the things that you are known to say every now and then, I guess, in your own family is, I love you, but I don't like you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just speaking the truth about situations. Uh, You know, Duchenne comes with a lot of, a lot of the boys have learning issues. A lot of them have anxiety. They have OCD. They have ADD. So the behaviors are real. 
and it's hard. It's 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 a it's not just the physical. It's the emotional, and of course, they're also carrying all these things that a, kids their age should not be caring about. You know, worrying about. I mean, you know, my son's seventeen, and he has to worry about not getting sick when he goes outside or not falling and breaking something and never walking again. That's what he's worrying about, not who he's going to ask to prom. So all those emotions are just spinning all the time. And, you know, I'm not a perfect parent by any stretch. And sometimes I just have to acknowledge where I am in that process to say, you know, I I don't like you right now, but I love you. And we're going to get back to like, but um, it may take a little bit of time. And Again, I think that's just giving freedom in the relationships and saying, okay, we're just going to call it like it is right now. This is, this is hard. Today is hard. Tomorrow, I hope we're going to get to a better spot. But just living in that reality that it, I don't know. And I think that's something I've tried to articulate, especially just in my spheres of influence with special needs moms is just to say it's hard. And there are some days when I have been known to lock myself in the bedroom and not come out and tell them to, you know, go away for a while that I needed a break. And, you know, we have to find ways to, to like, again, going back to the marathon analogy, you have to have some care in the middle. You have to stop and you have to say, okay, I need a moment to myself and I need to regroup. And then also just to kind of, here's, this is the thing a lot of people don't talk about special needs, but special needs kids can become entitled. (laughs) They, um, you know, you walk into the airport and people are handing them stuffed animals out of nowhere. You go to a restaurant and you, you know, you've got this kid in a wheelchair. So you get moved to the front of the line and things are just handed to them. And that's a, that's a true struggle we've had with our son, just to say, you know, you have some entitlement issues and kind of working through that. You know, I'll, I'll one time he we were in the airport. I think I was taking him. He goes to a doctor out of state and I, we were making quite a scene because he, I was pushing him in his wheelchair and he was having a fit. And um, I found myself yelling to him. You don't, you are so selfish. You don't think about anybody but yourself. (laughs) And all these people in the airport are just kind of staring at me like, who's yelling at the kid in the wheelchair? You know, because that's not seen as acceptable. But he's still a kid that has issues and behavior issues and feels entitled and is can be selfish. And that's navigating that is um is a challenge, I think, for special needs communities. Like, how do you create boundaries still with your children? How do you parent them well? How do you get them to more independence? You know, for as long as Joel is, I want him to feel successful in the years that he has and be independent as much as he can as he's growing up. And so that's been an interesting journey for me as a parent is how to navigate both of those things to be in the moment and celebrate that, but also hold him accountable and, you know, fight the entitlement that can come with all of that. You clearly have a command of grief and the role of grieving as 
a parent as a human being going through this very difficult challenge. And you talk about it in the context of your marriage, in the context of giving each other space to grieve. Um, You say, look, we can't expect each other to grieve in the same way. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think it's just permission giving for each person and and for your special needs child that's grieving. You know, they're grieving losses along with you. And sometimes I think we we maybe try to protect them too much and not give them the space to grieve as well or the siblings. The siblings lose things too. I, you know, my daughter, I, I vividly remember one time she wanted to go on a bike ride around the neighborhood, which sounds like a normal thing families do. And I told her, I said, we can't go. And she said, why? And I said, Joel can't go on a family bike ride around the neighborhood. We'll have to go together when he's not around. And she's like, that's not fair. And I said, you're right. And I don't know how many times I've said that to my kids. It's not fair. I get it. It's not fair. I think voicing that and and for me to say, I can't make it fair. I can't fix this. We can't go around this. We only can go through this. And when you are able to recognize that grief is just, you know, grief is a companion that you're going to have. Um, we all have grief as a companion for many reasons at some point in our life. And for the special needs family, especially those like ours with a terminal diagnosis, grief will never go away. There's all, there is a daily low level grief about what life should have been. And I would say, especially now as Joel's 17 and, you know, all the friends he's grown up with are um, getting ready to go to college They have girlfriends, they're going to prom, they're doing sports, and he's not doing those things. And that is a tiny grief every single day. But I guess I've learned not to fight the grief, to just say, yes, this is a companion that I'm going to have, and I have to figure out how to go through life with it. And I have to find gratitude where I can. And um, and just, you know, my faith gives me a, a hope beyond this life and this world. And that hope is an anchor that I think helps me with the companion of grief. I don't want to gloss over Hallie's story. And it seems like she fully recovered she did, um, for the most part. We did find out through that that she had kidney failure on one side, which I don't know that we would have found that out. So that was kind of a blessing in disguise. Um, and we did; she did go in and have to have surgery. And so that's something we have to watch. And they will have to follow her heart for the rest of her life. So that story, I think what's the... What's interesting about that is the trauma we experienced that still is with us to this day in a different way than Joel. Because when Joel was diagnosed at three, he's still running around and, you know, they say, okay, he's going to stop walking in seven years. Well, 
seven years, I remember the doctor saying, you're going to have a long time to process this. But Hallie's was so intense and so quick that we had trauma. And um, so managing that trauma, even to this day, and there are some lasting effects from the disease that, again, it's a rare disease, so they don't know everything. Hopefully nothing too uh, traumatic, but um, too serious, but uh, but definitely we have to watch her. And then when something comes up, the trauma comes up and then we say, is this related? I don't know. Is it related? So I think what from her situation, it's, um, yeah, just acknowledging that there was trauma and that's still a, a part of things. And, and now I probably impacts when something's starting going on with Joel, we think, okay, what is this? What is this? So managing all that, I will say for her, it's been an interest. It's an interesting experience for a special needs sibling to have their own medical issues. And it sounds weird to say, but it almost has helped her cope with Jushin more because she kind of had her thing, you know, and one day I had to take them both to the cardiologist at the same time and um, ask the cardiologist if I was going to get a package deal. But we went to the cardiologist and I'm really not in a good place because I'm thinking, why? Why do I have to have both kids at a cardiologist right now, but my kids are having the best time and Joel's showing her around the hospital and taking her to get ice cream. And we're walking out of the door of the hospital that day and I'm spent. I'm just done. And Hallie looks over at Joel and says, this was the best day ever. And I didn't even know what to do with that, but I thought, okay, you know, it's, it's their world. It's their normal. It's, they have a different normal (laughs) and they're learning how to live in it and be resilient and find joy in, you know, what it is. And uh, so, you know, they were just happy that they got to take pictures with the statue and go get ice cream and buy something at the gift shop and, you know, blow up all the gloves in the cardiologist's office and, So that was a lesson for me to say, you know what, just go with it. Just, just go with where you are and be silly and, you know, just live in the moment of it. And so that was a lesson for me that, you know, I just try to find silliness and fun even when we're doing something hard um, because they taught me that. If we look back even to when you were pregnant with, with Joel, and you were having signs that something like this could happen. You were having a vision of pushing him in a wheelchair, for example. And mm-hmm. before he was diagnosed, right, you were you, you were sort of praying to God. You said, speak up, God. What are you trying to say to me? Like you kept getting these little indicators of something that was happening. And then you had your husband who happened to be an expert or at least had seen this rare disease in his own work. And he was saying, you know, this could be something. And then you had the diagnosis and you had to deal with that and sort of go through your own denial phase. But your husband and your family was really welcomed by these organizations 
right? The Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy Organizations with welcome arms, right? Saying what? Come in. Yeah. We've been waiting for you guys. You're the people that we need on our team to help us fight this thing. And then with your brother, who is really uh, one of the top, you know, communication experts in the field and very well connected in Tennessee and happened to know the college football, the coach of the college football team, Philip Fulmer, to to say, look, this is actually a great cause that the College Football Association could take on and start to raise awareness for this very rare disease because it affects boys primarily. Mm-hmm. And by the time they should be going to college is about the time that, you know, sadly, they're overcome by this disease. And I would love for you to talk to us about Coach to Cure, MD, and just how all of these things have really answered that initial feeling that you had in your heart that this is, yes, in fact, our calling. Yeah. So, yeah, when when I was pregnant with Joel, there were some abnormalities with the kidney, and they sent us to an at-risk doctor, and she said, could be downs, could be nothing. But I had the whole time, I mean, I had during the pregnancy um, I wasn't thinking about him with having downs. I actually was had this vision of him and me pushing him in a wheelchair, which was weird. Right before he was diagnosed, I did. I kept feeling this God just saying to me, you know, I'm calling you to something else with um, kids. And I was already a children's pastor, so I thought maybe he was going to send me overseas or something. But then when Joel was diagnosed, I said, you know, I think I mentioned uh, a week after I said to James, I said, I think this is it. I think this is our calling. And James said, yes. And we went to the head of the organization. We started working with Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. And they said, you know, yeah, we, we haven't had anybody looking, not very many people looking at this behavior and learning issues. So, so he jumped in there. And then about a, you know, couple year a few years later um my brother who's always loved college football all sports he was a sports writer starting at 14 covering high school games i don't know how many times we fought over the fact that he had to watch every sporting event and i could not have the tv and we lived out in the middle of the country and we didn't have cable so we had to fight and it was ridiculous and um i was always recording over on the vhs days his Sporting events and it was a whole thing. So he's always loved college sports and particularly football. We're big Tennessee fans. And so he had this idea. He said, what if we went to college football and asked them to be part of this? And he came up with this plan, Coach to Cure MD, and, you know, where the college football coaches would support uh, one Saturday uh, in the season in September, they would wear patches for coach Shakir MD. And he was friends with Phil Fulmer, who was the football coach at UT and who was on the board for the AFCA and went to him and said, would you, would you help me with this? And um, I mean, there are charities that come to them all the time, but somehow we got an opening and they let coach Fulmer and Brad um, kind of pitch this to them. And, you know, I think what resounded with them was that this is a boy's disease when they should be playing college football, they're losing their lives. And also college 
college and high school football coaches, you know, I think there's this impression that they're just out there to win. But really, what I've learned from my many years with them now is they are so invested in developing young men and they care about that. And so this was just another venue for them also to you know, invest in their young men and bring these boys to campus who are fighting for their life to give their football players some perspective. And for them, they, they've communicated over and over how powerful that is. So, so yeah, so we found out, I would say in, you know, it was May or June that, uh, Coach to Cure in 2008 uh, that they had approved us to be a charity, and we had about eight weeks to pull it off. So I left my job where I was a pastor, and we started trying to pull off this national charity in about eight weeks with my brother, and uh, we started doing commercials and just hitting the pavement outside stadiums and over the years, it's progressed where we have kids that go out on the field during the games and national commercials and sponsorships and things like that. And it's been so cool for me just to see something positive come out of this and for us to share. You know, it's a it's it's a rare disease, Duchenne is, but it's I say it's the most common rare disease. But to have a national platform for any rare disease is amazing. And for me, just to meet the coaches and the players and, you know, my son gets to go to games and get pictures with the cheerleaders, which is his favorite part of the whole thing. And uh, it's it's been a great, you know, I think you want, we all want our life to have a higher purpose and count for something and make an impact. And I think Coach Secure it's one of the things that I think my brother and I will both say, we hope this has made an impact. Um, it's part of our life that we hope has made an impact. It absolutely has. And you write about the fact that when your son was diagnosed, and obviously your husband would have access to all sorts of repositories to search for papers and trials and clinical trials, but in 2005, there was only one clinical trial for DMD, and now there's over 100. And Joel is, in fact, even helping out on a data trial. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about your own impact and the impact of your family and of your entire community of stepping up to support you know, DMD? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there was very limited trials when he was first diagnosed. And um, the organization we worked with and still work with, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, who they coach to cure is, is under their umbrella. But they've really been moving the research forward and Coach Secure, we've used the, you know, money from Coach Secure to research some things, even some research on the college campuses, which is really kind of a cool, cool thing where, where the coaches were wearing the patches. Some of them received research dollars that campus for uh, research. So research is, you know, genetics has exploded. We still don't have a cure. We still ha- we have first few drugs have been approved for Duchenne, they don't help all of the population. And 
they still are kind of slowing the disease, but not curing the disease. So we have a long way to go, but we have come a long way. And I don't think when I was sitting on my couch in 2005, looking and seeing that there were hardly any clinical trials, I don't think I could have fast forward 14 years later, just think that there would have been over a hundred trials. So that's amazing. And it gives me hope um, for the future. And, you know, one of our goals right now, Joel's 17, and when he was diagnosed, we were told there wouldn't be a 17, and there is, and he's still walking some and does have, he's on a decline, of course, but we're trying to keep him as healthy as possible and just hoping and praying that the research keeps moving forward. And I'll tell you one of the main reasons why I'm doing Coach to Cure MD and I've done other things is because I, I've said from the beginning that whenever Joel gets to the end of his life, whenever that is, I want to be able to look him in the eye and say, I did everything I could. And that's my promise to him that he will know that we fought for him, that we did everything we could to move research and, and that it won't be in vain. You know, um, we lost one of our good friends to Duchenne, um, two years ago, Danny, Danny Garofalo. He's a big Rutgers fan. He was at every game. The Rutgers team showed up at his funeral and gave him a Jersey and, um, he would always stand as they were going into the stadium and he would represent uh, Coach Shakir MD at Rutgers every year, which is one of the beautiful parts of Coach Shakir MD is just the boys connecting with the team and um, having the building this relationship with them. But when I think about stopping fighting, I think about Danny and I think about Joel and I know that I don't want to stop fighting because I've promised, I've promised them that, that I won't stop fighting and that it won't be in vain. And my dream is that one day this mom is going to be sitting in an office and get the Duchenne diagnosis. And instead of six doctors walking in, looking at you like we had it's never good when six doctors walk into the room. I'm just telling you that now. But what I dream of a day when the mom is sitting there and one doctor walks in and says, your son has Duchenne, but don't worry. There's a cure. There's a drug. He's going to be fine. He's going to graduate from high school. He's going to get married. He's going to give, live a long life. And this is going to be something you have to manage, but something that is okay. We're not there yet, but that's my dream. And, you know, that's what gets me up in the morning is to picture that young mom getting a different story. Throughout this story and clearly throughout your entire life, your faith has been such an important bond that has really kept your family together. 
And one thing that you've said, which really sticks out at me as a really powerful piece of wisdom that I'd love for you to talk about is you say miracles don't look like what you'd expect, but they're still miracles. Yeah. I think, you know, when you get a um, diagnosis like Duchenne, you want the automatic miracle. But I've learned that there are little miracles along the way, and you have to celebrate those, and you have to keep your eyes open. I've always said that, that I feel like God is working and God is doing things, but you have to keep your eyes open to see them. And if you're just looking for one miracle, you're going to miss all the little ones that happen along the way. So I've just tried to find those miracles. You know, I never expected that Joel would still be walking at 17. Um, That's a miracle to me. It's a miracle that Hallie's pediatrician diagnosed us over the phone when we didn't have a diagnosis. It's a miracle to me that I've had a community, a community of Duchenne families that we've become family. I I didn't know I needed them in the beginning, and now I can't imagine walking through this without them. That's a miracle to me. So I'm just trying to find where I'm being offered grace and hope and unexpected things that for me are miracles. Rachel, thank you so much for this story. You're such a miracle to all of us. You and your family has come together to do so much good for so many others. This is a pattern that we've seen coming up when people face tremendous challenges. They not only overcome those challenges in their own way, but they're able to just keep giving and giving and giving to the community. And your story is just one of um, amazing servant leadership. And I thank you for your service and for your love for your children and for all of those Duchenne children out there. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What an extraordinary life story. If this story moved you, help enable our mission and keep this advertising free podcast going by chipping in $5 at bellystory.com. I'm responsible and accountable for this podcast, but I don't do it alone. Milos Brochetta is our sound engineer. Artie Wu is our advisor, and many others have helped along the way to bring the story to life. Thank you for listening. I'm David All, and this is Belly of the Beast Life Stories and Beyond. Thank you for rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. Stay tuned. I'm working on some stories that you need to hear.